Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would open my mouth and speak your words and your truth, that anything that is simply from me would go over our heads and would not take root, but that your truth would land in our hearts and that our hearts would be soft to hear your word. Lord, we want to produce a harvest in our own lives. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today is our last day of our series on joy. We've been looking at the seven habits of truly joyful people. And just to give you a recap, we started off by looking at the idea of being present, not dwelling in the past, not pining for the future, but living our lives today and being thankful for what is happening in our lives today. The second week, we talked about forgiveness and the idea of letting go of the grudges and of the burdens and of the bitterness that we sometimes harbor in our lives, which ultimately simply hurt ourselves, and about allowing us to forgive others, but also allowing God to forgive us. The third week, we talked about identity and the idea that we find our joy when we know who we are, why we are, and how we are. And ultimately, we can find those answers best in Jesus Christ. The fourth week, we talked about how do we find joy when life is just in those storms, when we find ourselves in the storms of life. And we talked about that parable that Jesus tells about the man who built his house on the rock versus the man who built his house on the sand. The fifth week, David Illman was here, and he talked about the idea of abiding in Christ, being connected to Christ. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, we did our sixth week, and we talked about how money can actually buy happiness, but not joy. Because happiness is those external things that make us smile from time to time, but deep down joy is inside and isn't fleeting. Today we're going to wrap up our series by looking at the idea of unconditional love. I want us to talk about unconditional love. To do that, I want to share with you something that's been going on in our culture, in our our society. You may have heard about it. I hope no one has actually faced it hand to hand, but it certainly is going around. And it's called the grandma scam. There is a fraud scheme going around these days. And it's been happening actually for the last few years now. People who have been using social media or other means to gather information on unsuspecting seniors about their families, and then they call them up and they tell them that one of their grandchildren is in deep need. And please wire some money to this account I was reading uh, one, one article about uh, a woman who got a phone call from who she thought was her grandson. He was traveling in Europe. She knew he was traveling in Europe. So she got a phone call, and it said that he had gotten into some trouble, and he had been arrested, and he needed money to bail him out. And it was about $10,000, and could she please wire that money? Please don't tell my parents. I'm already embarrassed. You're the only one I can trust, and this is my only phone call. I see some people nodding around here. 
Are you the ones who are like, yeah, my grandkids have said that to me too. I get that bail call all the time. But it's actually my grandchildren. Yeah. Well, this woman loves her grandchild. Probably it wasn't something that was completely out of, of a logical framework that he might get in trouble. And so she went to, to the bank. She got out the $10,000. She went to a transfer agency. She wired it. And it wasn't until about a week later that she called her children to check in about how this grandchild had gotten. And she realized that it was a scam. Now, most of us would think that we would never fall for that kind of a trick. And I hope you don't. Please know it's out there. And yet, so many incredibly intelligent, reasonable, logical people have fallen for it. Why? Because it pulls at our emotions. It pulls at those strings and we stop thinking logically and we start thinking emotionally and we think, someone that I love needs me and I will do whatever it takes to help them. And so instead of asking good questions, we simply rush in to help. It's because these emotions that we feel are so powerful. I want you to think for a second about someone in your life that you love so much. Like, if you could only choose like one or a few people that you just love the most in this world, think about those people. I know some of you have big families. I'm not going to ask you to, to like tell people who you chose in this. But think about someone that you just love so much. Picture their face. Maybe it's your spouse, your best friend, your children. Now, what would you do if that person that you love so much was hurt, was terribly sick, was in physical danger? I know this is a painful thought, and I just want you to hold on to it for just one more minute. What would you let stop you from helping that person? If you could intervene, would you? What lengths would you go? Some of those answers, those questions, just show us to the extent that we would go for someone that we love, the burdens that we would bear, the dangers that we would face, And what I want to tell you today is that the truth of Scripture is that God loves that person that you have pictured in your mind right now. That he loves that person so much more than you do that it's unfathomable. That your love for that person that you are feeling right now is just a drop in a very large bucket compared to the all-surpassing love 
that God has for that person. And let me tell you one other thing. The truth of scripture is that the love that you feel for that person right now is just a drop in a very large bucket of the love that God, the God of the universe has for you and you and you. God's love for us is so immense, so unmeasurable, so amazing, it's hard for us to even think about that. It's hard for us to accept that. And probably if you're like me, it's easier for you to accept that the God of the universe loves the person that you love than for you to accept that the God of the universe loves you. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says this, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. God's love is so immense, so passionate, so consuming that he moved heaven and earth just to be with you. John 3, 16 and 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, God loved us that much that he would come down from heaven in Jesus to reconcile us to himself. That he would go to the cross and he would take on our sin, the consequences for the junk in our lives, so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be with him for eternity. He would rather die for us than to live without us. That is the amazing love of God. And yet so many of us have such a hard time believing this, especially about ourselves, that God actually loves us, that God loves us without condition. And I think one of the reasons why we have such a hard time with this is because we try to understand God's love. We like understanding things. We like putting things in boxes. We like comparing things to something else that we understand. And so we compare God's love with the love of other people that we have in our world. Reasonable thing to do. The problem is that the love that we have for each other often has lots of conditions placed on it. For example, we might say, well, God is like a heavenly father. That's something that, that, that the Bible talks about. So we make that comparison. And we think, okay, well, maybe I have a great father, or maybe I don't have such a great father. Maybe I have a great mother. Maybe I don't have such a great mother. I have great parents. They might be watching. I've got to be careful here. Love you guys. But sometimes we have relationships in our lives where they say, you know what? I love you as long as you do well in school. And you know my love as long as you marry the right person or as long as you visit me enough. Corey Longmire was here last week and he was talking about how youth today face an interesting challenge with divorced parents. Youth that come from broken marriages face challenges because 
often you have some, some jealousy and envy in those relationships. And so if the child or youth spends more time or, or any time with the other spouse, then the love of the one parent decreases. I love you, but just don't spend as much time with them as you spend with me. And this is a, a tragic challenge for us even understanding the unconditional love of God because we often put conditions on our own love. And the idea of parents is just one example that I could give. There are lots of other relationships that we try to compare God to. And so let me tell you a story instead of the love of God. It's actually a story that Jesus told. It's found in Luke chapter 15. Don't look it up. You can look at it afterwards. But it's called the prodigal son. I think it should probably be better referred to as the loving father. You see, there was a father, a rich landowner, and he had two sons. And his younger son went through quite a hard, rebellious phase. And in his anger towards his family and in his bitterness towards his brother, he decided that he wanted it out. He wanted to leave the family. And so what he decided to do was to go to his dad and demand his inheritance. Now, there's a number of issues here. Number one, in many places and in part of this culture, the oldest child would have gotten most or all of the inheritance. The younger child could have deserved absolutely nothing. And yet, he's asking, I want my share. The second thing is that this is incredibly insulting to the father. Inheritance is not something that you receive when the person is alive, but when the person is dead. And so the son goes to the father in anger and he says, I wish you were dead. I want to treat you like you're dead. I don't want anything to do with you. Give me what I deserve and I'm gone. And some of us right now are going, if I was that dad, I'd give him what he deserves. And yet, the father, in an amazing amount of restraint, sells off some of the land or the cattle, gives the money to the son, and away the son goes to a foreign land, runs off, and starts living how he always wanted to, throwing expensive parties, hiring prostitutes, getting high on life. And he finds lots of friends. It's amazing how lots of friends come when you have lots of money. But my guess is probably it was only a month or two until all the money ran out. And guess what happened to the friends? They were gone as well. And now you have this young guy in a foreign country no family, no friends, and a famine happens, and he's desperate. So he sells himself, almost sells himself into slavery to go and to feed the pigs of someone else. And as he's pouring the slop into the pens, he longs to fill his stomach with their food. That's desperation. 
And one day, after some time of doing this, the son comes to a realization. He says, you know what? Back when I was at home, my dad's servants, they had more than enough food. Their tables were always full. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my dad. And I'm going to ask him to make me a servant. Can we just pause here for a second? We often forget how bold and brash this request even is. This son choosing to go back and now demand that his father make him a servant to take care of him again after he squandered all of this? Back to the story. And so the son starts out on the long journey. He drove into the foreign land, probably in a BMW, and he's walking all the way back. No shoes. He had to sell it all. And he starts rehearsing in his mind what he's going to say to his dad. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Oh, yeah, that sounds right. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. He says it over and over and over again in his mind. And what the son didn't know is that every day his father would scan the horizon for a glimpse of his son coming back. Every day he would wait longingly, expectantly for his son to go over that last hill. And on that fateful day, his son comes into sight and the father runs. Now, Jewish men didn't run for anything. Landowners didn't run for anything. That was a very humbling, humiliating thing to do. They would walk slowly, forcefully, and he ran. He runs to his son, and he jumps on him. Some scriptures say that he, he fell on his neck. That is a big bear hug right there. First, the son's not sure if the, if the dad's out there to kill him or not, and then he, he feels the kisses on his cheek. And he starts to rehearse, say what he's been rehearsing all this time. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worried to be called your son. Make me. He doesn't even finish it off. His dad stops him and yells to one of his servants. Come here, bring the best robe and put it on him. Look at these bare feet. Get sandals. Put those on him. Get the family ring that he threw in my face. Put it on his finger. Go kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. Because this son of mine was dead. And now is alive. He was lost. But now he's found. He began to celebrate. I don't know about you, but I don't feel a whole lot of pity for that son. And if I was a father, I'm not sure that I would have responded the same way that the dad did. I might have said, okay, fine, I'll make you my servant. I'll make you pay for all the, all the misery that you've, you've put on me. I don't know what I would have responded. The hurt and the pain that that father would have felt. And yet, Jesus tells the story because he shows us that the love that that father had for his son 
is the love that God has for us. Now, this was a love that we can't earn. It's a love that we can't earn. It's a love that we don't deserve. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still mucking the stalls, while we were still rebellious, while we were still far away, Christ died for us. It wasn't that we had come to him and said, God, we need you and we can't do anything to get to you. We were still rebellious and Christ died for us. We didn't know our need and Christ died for us. Titus 3, 4, and 5 says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 2.8 tells us that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So we didn't earn anything. We couldn't earn anything. We could try to be, make ourselves righteous. But that's like cleaning your earlobe when you're covered in mud. Like we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it at all. And yet... God still loved us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 tell us that this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we didn't earn, we didn't deserve God's love but it was given to us freely. The other thing I want to tell you is that God's love is so greater than our love. I'm a spiteful man, I need to tell you that. I like living in bitterness sometimes. I like making people pay for the hurt that they've caused me sometimes. I'm not saying this to boast about it, I'm just telling you my heart, I'm not perfect. And when I get hurt, my first instinct is I want to hurt back. We hurt God deeply by our rebellion. And yet he didn't choose to, to hurt back. His love is far greater than our love. 1 John four eighteen tells us that there is no fear in true love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When we understand God's love, we no longer need to fear it. We start with a reverent fear of God. We start by recognizing that God could squish us like ants. And we start by recognizing that probably he should that that would have been complete justice. And yet in the phenomenal love of God, he chose to put that all on himself on the cross. That he paid the punishment for our sin. 
And because of his act on the cross, we are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are reconciled with him. And when we recognize that, and when we embrace that in our lives, we no longer need to fear. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's often one that has been used at weddings. A little bit of a confession here. I can't actually remember whether we used it in my wedding or not. That was a blur of a day. I'll have to ask Heather. But probably many of us have seen it or heard it said at weddings. It has nothing to do with marriage, actually. It just talks about love a lot, and so it sounds really nice. But it is this passage that actually is talking about God's love, not our love, because the, the amount of love that it's talking about is so big and so high and so great that for us to say, and this is how we should love one another, we go, wow, that bar is way too high. And yet it is what we are to strive for. And this is what it says of God's love. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. And while we might hope that that is what happens in marriages, I need to tell you that that is so far from where my true love for Heather is. I want it to be there. I strive to love her in that way, and I fall short every single day. But God's love for you, God's love for me, is perfect. Number three, God's love for you is not conditional on you feeling loved. Let me say that again. God's love for you is not conditional on you feeling loved. Brian, what do you mean by that? Well, let me tell you, I love my kids. I have three semi-young kids now, including a two-year-old. And he wants to do everything that everyone else is doing. And so if we are making dinner, he wants to be up helping make dinner. And there are sharp knives there. And he wants to help. And he reaches for the sharp knife. And I say no, and I push that knife away. And he falls into this temper tantrum like, I just ruined his life. I'll wait for the counseling bills. But in that moment, does he feel my love? No. He doesn't understand it. I've just said no to something that he wants because it's big and shiny, and dad used it, so why can't I? I've said no. So dad, you must not love me. Well, put yourself in my shoes now. Do I love him because I've taken that knife away? Absolutely. Because I know that it would hurt him. I know that it would cut him. I know that he would be in danger. And so I remove that from him. 
Sometimes we don't feel God's love. Sometimes we pray for something and he is silent or he says no. We don't understand. We think, well, maybe he doesn't love me. Sometimes we come to church and we don't get the ooey-gooey feelings. And we sing the songs, but it feels stale. It feels empty. And we go, does God really love me? Well, let me tell you what it says in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? If we face those challenges, does it mean that God doesn't love us anymore? Does it mean that he's taken his love away from us? Paul continues, he says, no, not at all. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. We'll go into the rest of that scripture in a second. But just because you don't feel his love does not mean that he doesn't love you. Just because you don't feel that God is close to you does not mean that he's not right beside you. Just because you feel alone does not mean that God has abandoned you. In those times of darkness, in those times of quiet, in those times of doubt, God is right there. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He is with you, holding you, even if you don't feel it. And last of all, because of this, because of his great love, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from God's love. There is nothing that we can do or that someone can do to us that can separate us from this unconditional, all-surpassing, mountain-moving love of God for you. Paul continues in, uh, in Romans 8, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above and in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Brian, how about no, never. But Brian, what if? No, never. But Brian, if you only knew what I have done, who I have hurt, what I have thought, I can believe that God loves these other people in this room, but I'm the exception. And I know right now that there are a few people here who are thinking that very thing. And Paul would say, and I would say, if you only knew the things that I have done, the thoughts that I have thought, the people that I have hurt, you would be much less worried about yourself and much more worried about me. And yet Paul, who had killed people, Paul, who had thrown people in jail, Paul, who had actively tried to stop 
God's mission says there is nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Not death, not life, not angels or demons, not fears of today or worries of tomorrow. Not the power of hell, not the sky above or in the earth below. Nothing in all of creation. Nothing in all of creation. Nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's what that means. There is nothing, say that with me, nothing, one more time, nothing that you can do to make God love you any less And there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more than he does right now, this very moment. He died for you. He offers you life with him. He wants to be reconciled with you so badly. And he is doing everything short of twisting your arm to force you. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. But we still have a choice. God's love won't change. My question for you is, will you receive his love? Will you Allow yourself to be embraced by the one who is running to give you the biggest bear hug in the world. Will you come to God and say, God, I need that love. And I've been wallowing with pigs for far too long. I've been hurting myself. I've been hurting others. I don't want that anymore. I want to receive your love, whether for the first time or again and again and again. There is nothing that can separate you from his love. But it is a choice. Let's pray. God, right now there are people in this room who are struggling to believe that you love them that much. Because the enemy is whispering in their ear right now, God loves others, but he can't love you. Pastor Brian doesn't know about this. Pastor Brian doesn't know about this thing that I've done or this word that I've hurt someone with. Or, and if he knew... But Lord, you know. You know our hearts. And it hurts you. Just like that father. We know that it hurts you when we hurt ourselves and when we hurt other people. When we lie, when we cheat, when we betray, when we're unfaithful. 
and it hurts you and you are grieved. But even in that grief, Lord, your word says that you don't fail to love us. That even those things, even our sin, does not stop you from loving us. So Lord, right now, in the quiet of this room, we give you ourselves. And friends, I just want to invite you to just take your hands and just put them in front of you, palms up, like you were going to hold something. And Lord, as we pray, we just let go right now of whatever it is, whatever the burdens, whatever the the barriers are, whatever the sin is that is hindering us from receiving your love, from accepting that, from embracing it, from living in that love. We just let go of that, taking that out of our hands. And now with empty hands, Lord, we receive your love poured out for us on the cross. We ask that through your love, you would help us to love others the way you want us to. That we could love our children the way you want us to. That we could love our spouse the way you want us to. That we could love our coworkers and our neighbors the way you want us to. Because you love them as much as you love us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.